Welcome to this week's episode of The Read Out Loud, a weekly biotech podcast from STAT. I'm Allison DeAngelis. I'm Adam Forestine. And I'm Damian Garde. It's Thursday, November 9th, and here's what we're going to talk about this week. What exactly is a radiopharmaceutical? We explain a powerful new class of cancer treatments and their fascinating scientific backstory. We'll also discuss the latest news in the life sciences, including Eli Lilly's new obesity treatment, yet another biotech blowup, and some news in the world of shareholder activism. All that after a word from our sponsor. With a focus on genetics and genomic research, Regeneron Genetics Center is revolutionizing the industry with new discoveries. Today, I'm joined by Tim Thornton, Senior Director of Statistical Genetics at RGC, to learn more about the future of genome sequencing and a white paper on the yield of genetic association signals from genomes, exomes, and imputation. We really wanted to understand what are the implications for these different approaches? How does it impact your ability to discover new genetic signals? Tim, where can listeners learn more about Regeneron Genetics Center? The best place is Regeneron.com. So listeners of this podcast know that we love to talk about drug name pronunciations. Uh, We have a new one to talk about this week. (laughs) It's Adam's favorite topic. Yes, uh, it is. Zepbound. Uh, Damien, what is a Zepbound? <laughs> well, a Zepbound. Well, so the news this week that we got is that the medicine you may know as Mount Jaro, which is an Eli Lilly treatment that targets, among other things, the GLP-1 hormone um, that has been in dominating, I guess, the news in this sphere of the world for, for quite a long time. It had been approved as Mount Jaro to treat type 2 diabetes uh, for more than a year. It has now been approved to treat obesity, which was a long-awaited and expected, but we didn't know exactly when it would come, outcome, and that outcome came this week. And uh, what you're getting at is that Lily will not be selling it as Mount Jaro, as a treatment for diabetes, but rather be selling it as Zepbound, a name that, well, leans toward terzepatide, which is the generic name of this medicine. Uh, and also bound, which I mean, I, I feel like the, the issue um, uh, phonetically is that a P followed by a B yeah, feels weird. very unnatural. There's too many consonants. Yeah. It, just, it doesn't flow. The, that P and the B. And actually that we could talk about like how the drug works and stuff, but, but that did come up. There was a Eli Lilly. <laughs> you mean, you mean we should conference. talk about more important things than the name? Uh, yeah, you know, arguably should. are there more important things, but uh, Eli Lilly hosted a press conference uh, on Wednesday uh, in the hours after the approval, and someone, I, I can't remember who, but one brave, thoughtful reporter asked, what's with the name? Um, and the company said, we like it. It tested well with uh, employers and with patients in the you know process by which the name comes out. Although I will say, listening to Eli Lilly CEO David Ricks say Zepbound, I feel like for one millisecond, he too kind of tripped <laughs> over that PB. But maybe that was all in my mind. Um, I mean, and- they could probably call it stringy cat puke and people would still be <laughs> still be buying this drug. I mean, I don't think anybody's going to really care. What, I mean, they're going to call it Zep. It's going to be, I want that Zep. Zep drug. Yeah. The, you know, yeah, that's the kids are going to be like, hey, have you tried Zep recently? Exactly. Yeah. It'll have a cute TikTok moniker. And it's worth noting that Zepbound is, I mean, priced 
lower than uh, Wagovi, Eli Lilly's uh, weight loss medicine. Uh, they've set the price for ZepBound at $1,060 per month. Wagovi is $1,349. So with a discount like that, do you really care about the name? <laughs> well, that's fair. And that, you know, probably a more studious podcast would have led with this because it is probably more so the news. But so so people may know in clinical trials, terzepatide, the now, what is now ZepBound, um, has led to a greater percentage of weight loss than Wegovi did in its clinical trials in obesity. We're looking at like around 20% for ZepBound on the high end, whereas Wegovi was closer to 15%. So, you know, there, there does seem to be an efficacy difference, and it's likely because this medicine targets more than one hormone involved in the metabolic system. So it's interesting that bucking industry tradition where a new medicine, especially one that might have a claim of superiority, usually prices at a premium to whatever the other medicine is, because that's how pharmaceuticals work, Lilly made the decision to price it, at least the list price, at a 20% discount to Wegovi, which as we know is a medicine so popular that Novo Nordisk can't make enough of it to satisfy demand. So, you know, there's a natural question of why did you do that? Um, both because that's not generally what pharmaceutical companies do and because this business is counterintuitive in many ways. We know that pharmaceutical companies, especially for indications like diabetes, diabetes um, are incentivized to set high list prices because that way the pharmacy benefits managers who kind of run the world in American healthcare can negotiate larger rebates and larger discounts, which benefit their businesses and ostensibly maybe debatably benefit their clients as well. Lilly chose not to do that. And so that came up in the press conference. And basically, Lilly's point was, we're looking at employers. Employers want a lower list price because that will incentivize them to opt into healthcare coverage for obesity treatments, mm. which is sort of a convoluted thing, but the means by which obesity drugs are paid for in America is different than the means by which diabetes drugs are commonly paid for in America. So Lily is kind of playing 3D chess here, doing the thing that, you know, arguably investors raise an eyebrow, which is charging less than they maximally could, with the bet that that will expand the overall market for this treatment in the months and honestly years to come as it rolls out. So to say that I mean, at this point, most health insurers aren't covering either ZepBound or uh, Wigovi, um, and that they think that by offering a discount on ZepBound, they can get insurers and you know employers to begin coverage of their medication first, offer a little bit of an incentive, if you will, right? Exactly. Yeah, and the numbers are, are kind of galling, like. There's an estimated 100, 120 million people in America who would fit the definition of overweight or obese uh, by the FDA's um, definition and thus would be eligible for ZepBound or Wegovy. Only about half of those people, about 50 million, have insurance coverage that would cover obesity treatments. And only about 5 million people in the country are actually getting one of these drugs right now. So I realize that's just a lot of numbers, but the point is <laughs> the, the sort of like kinetic energy of this market is something that everybody is really keyed in on. How do you get that 5 million to be closer to that 50 million, let alone more than that? And that's where, you know, the analyst estimates of the size of the market for GLP-1 like treatments just gets into kind of like funny money at a certain point. And it's because nobody really knows how to bridge that gap. And so I think what we're seeing is this is Lily's best laid plan for doing that with ZepBound. 
David, just on a related topic, this is, and this may be a question that you can't answer yet because it's too early, but um, has there been any response from kind of the, from the PBM slash insurance side of this story um, to the price? And, and noting that most, uh, you know, large insurance companies own large PBMs. So <laughs> they're not separate. Uh, they're not separate entities. They have different names often, but they are all owned, you know, this, this, this giant corporate monolith. No, it's a good question. I haven't seen a response. I think it's going to take time. You know, the, these negotiations sort of a starter pistol goes off, I guess, when FDA approval happens. And the, and the drug will not actually be available in pharmacies until after Thanksgiving, according to Lily. So we're going to learn a lot about how that shakes out. Now, you know, PBMs probably won't say, actually, we prefer a higher price, um, even though, you know, we kind of know that functionally that's true. Um, I think, yeah, Lily's really putting the ball in their court, not to use a cliche. Um, yeah, I think there is a headline benefit to Lily to saying we priced at a 20% discount to uh, our competitors. And the company also has published and is generating yet more data, concluding basically that the societal cost of obesity far outstrips the actual you know cost it would take to, to get more and more patients on this medicine. And so I get, yeah, we're, we're witnessing the early innings of what will be a very long and probably contentious fight between pharmaceutical manufacturers, including Novo Nordisk, and the payers, PBMs, and insurers that stand between people who might want these drugs uh, and actually getting them. I speculate that Eli Lilly is in some ways kind of also looking over its shoulder at the fact that its competitor, Novo Nordisk, is, you know, about to release data at uh, AHA this this coming weekend and, and next week showing additional benefit beyond weight loss. Their data is related to, you know, the effects on the cardiovascular system, which is something that I, as far as I'm aware, you know, we haven't really seen data yet with terzepatide, but for semaglutide, uh, Novo Nordisk drug, that's something that they've said is an added benefit and is also therefore an incentive to use their drug over others. Although I guess you could argue that there is a read through to both because of the similarity of the mechanisms. Allison, those drug names just roll right off your tongue. It's such a <laughs> great <you>. job. <laughs> I'm a professional. <laughs> Actually, the, uh, as an aside, uh, terzepatide, a rare case where the generic name is easier to pronounce than the brand name, which again is Zepbound. But no, that <laughs> is a good point. Uh, this weekend, um, the American Heart Association meeting is happening. Our colleague Elaine Chen will be covering it. It may already be in Philadelphia as we speak, um, but that is where Novo Nordisk will present detailed data from their long-term cardiovascular outcome study for Wegovi. We know that the study succeeded, which is to say we know that treatment with Wegovi over about five years um, resulted in fewer cardiovascular events, heart attacks, strokes, fatalities than placebo. And uh, we'll get those details this weekend. It, it's, I think there is a class effect. I think the perception among physicians and scientists is that if we go V did that, it's reasonable to assume that a, a similarly powerful or in, in Trisepicide's case, seemingly more powerful treatment would have a similar effect. Lilly is running a similar study of its own, but it is years behind Novo Nordisk, so we're not going to see those data for some time. What will be interesting this weekend as they present detailed data is to look at the correlation or lack thereof between weight loss and this cardiovascular benefit, which is to say there's still some debate over whether GLP-1's effects in the long term on your heart health are 
solely or mostly the result of the fact that these drugs make you lose a lot of weight, or if there's something else, as we've learned um, constantly, GLP-1 or you know targeting GLP-1 has loads of effects, including psychologically, um, in the vascular system, et cetera. There could be other explanations for this. And so that'll be interesting because as we mentioned, we know terzepatide leads to greater weight loss than semaglutide. Um, but if weight loss itself is not the driving factor of the cardiovascular benefit that Novo saw, then that might kind of change the conversation coming out of the conference. So Damien, uh, so this conference, the HA conference is uh, this weekend. Uh, and, uh, you know, all of this comes obviously in kind of, we look at it sort of a com- from a competitive standpoint, uh, you know, you've got Lilly and Novo sort of way out ahead of of their other pharma competitors. Um, as we recorded this podcast this morning, actually AstraZeneca licensed a uh, an early stage oral uh, GLP-1 from a Chinese drug maker, uh, again, early early stage. But um, I wanted to ask you about Pfizer, because Pfizer has uh, an, an oral GLP-1 drug candidate that they are that they are studying. Uh, I think results from a, I guess, a mid-stage study, I guess, are coming out relatively soon. And that probably is a pretty important uh, milestone for Pfizer, right? That's true. Yeah. Any day now, we expect to get, as you said, mid-stage data on an oral medicine like this or a potentially competing medicine uh, that Pfizer is developing. They had discontinued a second one that they were also working on. And it's interesting because, well, I mean, the obvious thing, the medicines we've talked about to date are injectables. They are subcutaneously injected once a week. An oral treatment would be more convenient, I think. There's no doubt about that. And we know the demand for these drugs is insatiable, apparently. So you can see the market opportunity for Pfizer. What I think is curious is how much attention is being paid to this data readout when you remember that Pfizer is a massive multinational company. But the recent story of the firm, which is dealing with what turns out to be a pretty dramatic decline in demand for the COVID-19 products that it made so much money off of in recent years, has made people talk about Pfizer almost like it's some plucky biotech company where like every new data readout can swing market value to such an extent, which I, I don't know. I mean, that's sort of like a meta phenomenal thing. But to your point, yes, we expect or well, it is expected that sometime before the end of the year, Pfizer will have those data. And again, they're mid-stage data. They're testing multiple doses. I think what people want to see is can this medicine get into the ballpark of the approved GLP-1 treatments in terms of weight loss? And can it do so without any safety concerns that would make it either impractical or perhaps not as competitive on the market compared to these injectable medicines? And that remains to be seen. So speaking of the world of biotech, uh, we had another biotech blowout uh, blow up this week with Ventix. Adam, tell us what happened. Yes, Allison. Uh, Ventix Biosciences, a San Diego-based biotech company. Yes, it blew up. I guess that's a, that's a polite way of saying that their stock went down like 80%, 90%. And uh, the reason for that uh, blow up was the failure of a mid-stage clinical trial of an experimental drug uh, that targets TIC2. It's a pretty well-known uh, drug target. Uh, Bristol-Myers has a, an approved TIC2 drug in, for plaque psoriasis. Uh, so this Ventix drug did not work. And, uh, and it, and, you know, probably we're talking about this, not necessarily just because of Ventix, um, you know, which is a company that may, probably people may not know about very much, but I think it's more, uh, indicative of kind of a, a malaise or a problem, uh, in the greater biotech world. When we have these companies that sort of develop, um, that are founded around kind of me too targets, me too drugs. Uh, you know, crowded, crowded fields of uh, clinical development, 
and uh, you know they they go public. And I think you know we sort of look at these companies after the fact, and there again, there's a little bit of sort of Monday morning Monday morning quarterbacking that goes on here, but. Uh, you sort of wonder, like, why did these companies exist in the first place? Is maybe <laughs> mm-hmm. the kind of the existential question that we ask. Um, you know, were they really going to be able to compete uh, in a very crowded field uh, against larger competitors necessarily? And, uh, you know, I think uh, Jared Holtz, the uh, strategist, biotech strategist, uh, commentator at Mizuho Securities, kind of <laughs> put out sort of a mini rant to this effect. Uh, in in the hours after Ventix blew up, and I, I thought it was pretty good, you know, because I think it sort of, um, you know, it, it really, it, it just sort of described this phenomenon that I think that we all sort of look at, like there's just too many of these biotech companies out there, um, and then they blow up, and you wonder sort of like why did they get funding in the first place? Um, and I, I think it's a it's a relevant question to ask. It's also maybe kind of a warning looking forward in uh, the Vintech situation remind me that there's kind of a damned if you do damned if you don't thing in biotech especially when things don't work which is to say that as valuations have gone down and as this sort of investment climate has become more conservative we've seen venture capitalists and, and people who buy into IPOs favoring companies that have medicines for known targets that have a conceivable benefit over the competition and have a pathway to the clinic and thus the market over the yesteryear flavor of platform companies with these like bold science projects that are going to revolutionize this, that, or the third. The Ventix thing, you know, they were that former type of company with the medicine targeting Tick 2, which, as you mentioned, is competitive. Bristol-Myers Squibb has an approved medicine there. Takeda paid a lot of money for a medicine that looks like it works pretty well um, in inflammatory disease. And so it fit the phenotype of a good biotech investment just about 12 months ago, um, and it went public at a roughly $1 billion valuation. Now, drug didn't really work the way it was supposed to. Companies trading below cash. Everything has gone wrong. But it's just a reminder that, like, even the best laid plants, even conservatism uh, in, in biotech investment can still lose you a ton of money if the drugs don't work, which I realize now is just kind of a truism and this wasn't a very interesting point. But it, it's very sign of the times, I guess, is what I agree with. Oh, absolutely. I mean, what what now does Ventix have to fall back on? I think that's the inherent risk when you kind of pivot from the platform play that has been so in favor over the last, you know, four or five years to focusing on companies with a clinical stage asset is that what happens if that asset fails, which is incredibly likely in the biotech world. Uh, the, the vast majority of you know experimental drugs will not make it through clinical trials. So then what what does you know, what does Aventix fall back on? Um, Adam, do we have an answer on that? Well, you know, I think the counter argument to all of this, or you know, maybe the argument that would be made by people who um, found companies like Ventix. Is that you know? Look, you never know until you do the experiment, and maybe maybe you got the best tick two drug, or maybe you got the best fill in the blank target drug out there, right? So, I understand that argument, and I you know, and obviously there's some I think there's some logic to it. Um, it just seems like oftentimes we we see these 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 things don't work. You know, I mean, I don't know, maybe like a like a Nimbus Therapeutics, and you know, Damien, you mentioned. The Decada drug, right? I mean, they look like they had a like a, a drug. It's 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 certainly not. Uh, it's I guess you can call it a me too because it's it's sort of behind. But maybe it's the best one. And now Decada has it, and they did a big deal, billions of dollars. So maybe that justifies this kind of strategy. Um, you know, just talking about the other side. 
Well, finally, last week we uh, mounted a podcast farewell to Jean-Jacques Bianamé, the longtime CEO of BioMarine Pharmaceutical, who's retiring uh, next month after 18 years at the company. This week we learned, well, something that kind of colors that story, which is that Elliott Management, the formidable uh, and respected and probably feared uh, investment fund that does a lot of shareholder activism, has apparently taken a pretty sizable stake in Biomarin and has been in dialogue with the company, this is according to Reuters reporting, for in recent months rather, about its its ideas for how Biomarin might operate going forward. Now, traditionally, activists have a pretty clear idea how companies should operate, and it is to spend less money and make themselves more attractive to a potential acquirer. I'm not sure if that's what Elliot's talking about. They haven't gotten to the point of, you know, filing things with the SEC or mounting a proxy challenge, anything like that. So no idea what those conversations were, but it does kind of color the possibility that JJ's retirement was related to this matter? Again, I don't know. Yeah, I mean, I think Elliot's pretty effective when they when they come in. I, I think they're influential and they, they, they do this. They're sort of low key. I mean, they're not like an Alex Denner type of an activist investor who tends to sort of make a lot of noise. Um, Elliot, it seems to be, they sort of play a little bit behind the scenes. So like you said, we don't really know what their strategy here is and, and whether it is about putting the company up for sale or just maybe... Um, doing other things like, you know, cutting costs. I mean, you know, one of the, obviously one of the criticisms of Biomarin for a long time has been that, you know, while they were a very successful developer of drugs for rare diseases, they spent a lot of money uh, and and took a long, long time to reach profitability. And so maybe that's something, now that they've sort of reached this tipping point, to, to use another cliche, today's, I guess today's <laughs> cliche day on the podcast, um, maybe Elliot wants them to, you know, to boost profitability. It's interesting, yeah, and it makes for an interesting first day for Alexander Hardy, the CEO who is stepping in to replace JJ uh, in December in that the climate around the company, at least in terms of public perception, now that we know about the Elliott interest, is different than it seemed just last week when we got the news of this happening. So very much something to watch. For decades, oncologists have known that blasts of radiation can be powerful tools for treating cancer. The problem is that the imprecise treatment will destroy not only tumors, but the healthy tissues around them. After years of research and a few billion dollars of investment, we're now entering the age of radiopharmaceuticals, a class of medicines that pair radioactive isotopes with cancer-hunting molecules that offer a targeted way to radiate tumors while sparing surrounding cells. So, Allison, you wrote a great story this week on the rise of this new technology. I- I'm going to call them Zappy Zaps <laughs> in the spirit yeah. of Zep. So we've got Zep. We've got Zappy Zaps. Everyone behind the scenes should know that Adam, for the last 24 hours, has been referring to this week as the week of Zappy Zaps and Zep. So that's the, yes, the this subtitle. Is the zap, this is the Zappy Zap segment of the podcast. So, <laughs> Allison, tell us, you know, kind of big picture, tell us what we're talking about when we refer to radio pharmaceuticals. So radiopharmaceuticals are a class of uh, cancer medicines that you know, have have been around for a couple of decades. So we saw a, a, a slate of approvals, you know, in the late 90s and early 2000s of a few medicines that used radioactive isotopes and basically bound them together, linked them together with a molecule that would seek out a specific target that sits on the surface of cancer cells. 
in order to deliver that radiation specifically to those cancer cells, as opposed to right now, oftentimes if you are a cancer patient and you go in to receive radiation, you're getting a kind of beam of radiation from outside of your body that has to go through layers of you know skin and muscle and bones and can cause irritation and is rather imprecise. This is a very targeted uh, approach, and that's part of what got people excited about it. But the kind of hitch with that first generation of products was that for a variety of reasons, drugs like Bexar and Zofigo disappointed commercially. They kind of entered spaces where they then were met with a bunch of competition. And in many of those cases, the the companies behind them actually discontinued production of those drugs. The, the field kind of quieted down and, you know, kind of zoom forward to 2017, 2018, Novartis acquires two startups that are developing radiopharmaceuticals, um, spends about $6 billion in total, and within a couple of years is putting out new types of, of these therapies, the second of which, Pluvicto, sends a jolt through the industry and shows this really exciting benefit in patients with prostate cancer. And that kind of, you know, gets people excited about this field once again. So that's interesting. As you mentioned, that kind of galvanized this renewed interest from pharmaceutical companies, obviously, but also startups and venture capitalists. So what does that what does that look like right now? Like what's the state of radio pharmaceutical development in terms of the pipeline of treatments and the amount of investment in the space? Yeah, to, to kind of peel back the curtain, I started noticing within the last year or two financing announcements in the in the radio pharmaceutical space, which I had no background on. Um, and and financings that were really healthy and and quite large for kind of the depressed biotech market that we're in right now. Um, there are now 75, you know, roughly, give or take, uh, startups and and biotechs in this field, and several of which who have launched in the last couple of years with, you know, like $90 million rounds, you know, $120 million Series Bs. There's actually quite a bit of money going into this field. And then we've also started seeing acquisitions. We had Eli Lilly last month jump in and acquire Point Biopharma, which is a player in this field. And one of the rare biotech IPOs this year is another radio pharmaceutical company called Raise Bio, which actually, you know, managed to pull off an IPO and has not really seen its stock drop like others have this year, at least not yet. So there, there is a renewed vigor that I'm hearing from the investor space, basically where they're saying, this drug we think can do what things like ADCs and, you know, uh, couldn't do. And, you know, we have been wondering what we do next in the oncology space when, you know, CAR-Ts have kind of run into their own hiccups and, you know, development in some of those ways has hit a bit of a, you know, a barrier um, and commercialization has run into so many problems. If we can get this right, we think that radiopharmaceuticals could be really widespread and beneficial for patients. So, Allison, these are not the medicines that we're sort of used to. They're pretty complex to to manufacture and deliver. Uh, has that been an issue? Absolutely. That's something that we've seen Novartis 
run into um, and has kind of, you know, caused many speed bumps for the launch of Pluvicto. So radiopharmaceuticals, one, involve a radioactive isotope. Um, and that's not something that is easily sourced. The companies that are working in this this field today often use a lot of them are using either the, what's called a beta emitter called uh, lutetium or using um, an alpha emitter called actinium. Now, <laughs> here's where we get geopolitical. Uh, one of the largest suppliers for you know nuclear products is Russia. And Russia is one of the, the largest suppliers for actinium and uh, a component that's key in producing uh, lutetium. So that creates a little bit of an international hurdle in that the United States and many other nations are, you know, responding to the the invasion of Ukraine, are putting sanctions on Russian exports. So far, uh, nuclear products and, and Russia's nuclear industry have not been included in those sanctions, but there's kind of a question of, you know, if that will be the case in the future. And some people have called for that. So one, sourcing your raw materials, not exactly a walk in the park. Then you run into this this hurdle that these radioactive isotopes are not, you know, shelf stable forever. They're something that begin to degrade and often degrade within a matter of days. So you need to be manufacturing these things and then shipping them out to patients, usually within a matter of days. Novartis right now manufactures and ships out uh, Pluvicto, their big blockbuster radiopharmaceutical drug for prostate cancer, in about three days, they told me. So that's a, that's a very technical and, and intricate supply chain that we're working with. And, you know, that's an open question as to how that evolves and whether the industry is able to get that supply chain right. And that has led to companies launching, as we saw last month with this company called Nucleus, uh, that Nucleus Radiopharma, who are basically focused on we will we will help you guys do this. It's a contract research and manufacturing organization that is designed specifically to help people with radiopharmaceuticals. And they have backing from like the Mayo Clinic and GE Healthcare and Fox Chase Cancer Center. So, you know, big manufacturing and production hurdles, you know, await this field. So outside of manufacturing, clinically, as it stands, approved radiopharmaceuticals are indicated for patients whose cancer has endured more common treatments. I know you spoke to people who, who think that these medicines have a lot of promise in earlier lines of therapy. So what might the future hold for them and, and what should we be looking out for? I think that the future looked a little bit different before and after ESMO. The, the oncology meeting in Europe just a couple of weeks ago where Novartis presented kind of first of its kind data for Pluvicto in patients who had not yet received chemotherapy. Uh, Pluvicto right now is approved for patients who have, as you mentioned, Damien, uh, gone through other more common cancer treatments, you know, more standard of care treatments. Um, Novartis hopes to move Pluvicto kind of earlier in the pipeline. And in this data that they presented at ESMO, it actually, you know, patients taking Pluvicto before chemotherapy had a 50% lower risk of progression than patients who received the standard of care, which 
many people saw and and when they spoke to me pointed to as a sign that this class of medicines can be hugely influential for patients. With other oncology medicines that have been in development and you know uh, therapeutic modalities that have been in the works in the last couple of decades, there's always been this question of how the tumor will respond to it. Will the tumor begin to develop a resistance to the treatment? Um, you know that's very common with you know uh, immunotherapies. That's not necessarily the case with radiopharmaceuticals, where when you drop that radioactive iodine or the radioactive isotope, I should say, on the tumor, you're creating either single-stranded or double-stranded DNA breaks uh, that really don't give the the tumor a lot to work with in terms of kind of rallying itself and developing a resistance. So there's a hope uh, among some that, you know, this could be used in patients, uh, you know, before chemotherapy and kind of potentially could have, you know, we don't use this word lightly, uh, you know, a curative effect in patients. Now, not everyone in the radiopharmaceutical space is ready to kind of put that out there, but there are some who are starting to broach this this concept that maybe we can really just zap cancer and and you know cure patients who might otherwise um, you know go through many many years of cancer treatment or succumb to cancer. So, Damian, Allison, you know I've been covering biotech for a very long time. So so come gather around my my uh, my rocking chair. And let me tell you a story about uh, the old days of radio pharmaceuticals. So the first radio immunotherapy approved was called Zevalin. It was from IDEC Pharmaceuticals that's now part of Biogen. But the really interesting trivia here is that uh, that drug was reviewed by the FDA in 2001. The FDA advisory panel meeting for Zevalin was held on September 11th, 2001. Wow. wow. Did not know that. <laughs> yeah. So as the as the as the planes were hitting <laughs> wow, the World Trade Center uh, and the Pentagon, this 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 FDA advisory panel meeting was actually underway and uh, people were getting alerts and their phones were buzzing. And I I've, I've talked to people who were there actually because I was covering this at the time and uh, you know, there was just like stunned shock, silence. Obviously, you know, people really didn't know what was going on at the time. Uh, and but after sort of a pause, they decided to just keep going and 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 you know keep going with the uh, with the advisory panel meeting, and they did um, because they didn't really know what else to do. And uh, you know, it got a positive vote. Um, but you know, when you talk to old folks who used to work at IDEC, and there were employees at IDEC in their San Diego headquarters who were sort of watching. This, this, uh, watching this panel, and you know, obviously, they were also watching the television to sort of seeing the, you know, the unfolding events of September 11th. So it was, uh, but that's a little, uh, little radio pharmaceutical trivia for you. Wow, I do not know how to follow. I that. don't. Yeah, I have no idea how to respond to that. I, <laughs> I, 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 there's no response. It's just a fascinating <laughs> little is. twist in the history of this field. So I. Wow. Felt like I should share that with that's you. Thank so you. strange. I can't imagine going on. With an FDA advisory panel meeting, yeah, in, yeah, in they that did. Context. They just kept, they kept they just kept going. They you know they were there and they didn't really know what to do. And you got to remember, like you know, back then there was that that morning there was so much confusion. Yeah. right? I mean, there was people really didn't know what was going on, and um, and so they did. But yeah, it, you know, so obviously it was a very bittersweet day 
um, a tragic day, but you know, one that should have been really joyous for the employees of IDEC uh, and and Zevelin, but uh, you know, it obviously turned out not to be. I literally don't know what to say next. What a <laughs> jarring <laughs> shift in <laughs> tone. And on that, <laughs> and on that note. That does it for another episode of The Read Out Loud. Thank you to Teresa Gaffney for producing this week's episode. Our senior producers are Hyacinth Empanado and Alyssa Ambrose. Our executive producer is Rick Burke. And our theme music is by Brian Joel. We'd love to hear from you. Tell us what you like about this week's episode, what you didn't like, and whether you want me to tell more old stories from <laughs> oldie time biotech. <laughs> I can do it if you won't. Uh, you can do all that by sending us an email at readoutloud at statnews.com. And if you like what we do, leave a review or rating on Apple Podcasts or whichever platform you use to get your podcasts. See you next week.